there are a whole range of ways in which I think the humanitarian system is improving, but that is really only taking the edge off the fact that the needs are growing because the causes of those needs aren't being addressed. And that's really the thing that the world needs to work out how to deal with better, whether it's conflict, preventing conflict, better cooperation between the great powers to that end, whether it's climate change, acting earlier when there's droughts and other extreme storms, or whether it's diseases. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to name anyone better qualified to lead the UN's Humanitarian Coordination Office, OCHA, than Mark Lowcock. With more than 30 years of hands-on experience in the humanitarian and development field, including running the UK government's International Development Department just before he became UN Relief Chief. Through his regular briefings to the Security Council on humanitarian crises from Mozambique to Yemen, Syria to Ethiopia, he's been unafraid to speak truth to power and call out the failures that continue to leave millions at risk of death, starvation and malnutrition. I'm Matt Wells, and for this edition of our Lid Is On podcast, my colleague Deanne Penn has been speaking in depth to Mr Lowcock as he gives his final briefing to ambassadors before leaving the job of emergency relief coordinator, passing on the baton to another Briton who's been the UN's top envoy to Yemen in recent years, Martin Griffiths. Deanne began by asking Mark Lowcock what his expectations had been when he first became UN relief chief four years ago. What I hoped in 2017 when I started this job would be that we would enter an era where humanitarian need around the world would decline somewhat. It had increased a lot uh, during the course of the decade of the 2010s, largely because of new conflicts, but also because of the effect of climate change. And I had hoped it might be possible to reverse that recent trend, because over most of the last 50 years, actually, there's been huge progress in human development. People live longer, they're better fed, more children go to school, fewer die of avoidable diseases and so on. And I had hoped we would sort of double down on that progress and that would find its way through to the world's most vulnerable people who typically are those in humanitarian situations. But I think, you know, objectively speaking, the last four years have been an unusually difficult time. Firstly, we've had an expansion of conflict in many places a failure to resolve long-standing conflicts like Syria and Yemen, and new ones too, Mozambique, Ethiopia, a variety of other places. Secondly, we've seen the growing impacts of climate change. Climate change is now a huge cause of humanitarian suffering around the world. And thirdly, we've had disease outbreaks, not just the pandemic, but of course the pandemic's made a huge difference. So although my goal was to see a reduction in suffering, in fact, what's happened is a growth to unprecedented levels, really, in the number of people who need protection and assistance. I mean, the good news is the UN, the NGOs, the Red Cross continue to do a fantastic job in saving lives and reducing suffering. And I think the humanitarian system has really stepped up to the mark in recent years. And we reach more than 100 million people a year. We certainly save millions of lives every year. And things would be even worse, but for the courage and commitment and professionalism and dedication of all the people who work for humanitarian agencies around the world, most of whom, let's remember, are citizens, nationals of countries which are in crisis themselves. But the big thing is, until the world gets better at dealing with the causes of humanitarian problems, and that's overwhelmingly conflict, climate change, COVID and other diseases, nobody should expect the symptoms to be reduced. There will be more people who need help until the causes are better addressed. 
without a doubt, 2020 was an especially difficult year. How has the pandemic impacted UN aid operations? So the problem we're trying to tackle has got much more severe because of the pandemic. Of course, tackling it also has got more problematic. We went through that period in the middle of 2020 where international airlines basically closed down, which made it very, very difficult for us to get aid workers in and out of places where they were working. We've seen huge shortages of essential equipment, personal protective equipment, drugs, commodities and so on. And we've also seen them being largely hoovered up by better off countries. We've seen the terrible inequities in vaccine availability. The countries doing best coming out of the pandemic are the rich countries who've got the scientists and the pharmaceutical companies and the fiscal base, the tax systems, which means they can raise money to pay for huge vaccination programs. The poorer countries have not had that yet, and that looks to be still um, a long way off. The pandemic has also, in a way that's not sufficiently understood, exacerbated lots of pre-existing problems. You know, there's been new conflicts that have emerged during the 15 months since the pandemic took hold. Nagorno-Karabakh, places in Mozambique, what we've seen in Ethiopia. And, you know, to some degree, unfortunately, that is the result of malign interests taking advantage of a moment where the rest of the world is focused on a big problem and pursuing undesirable objectives, harmful objectives. To some degree, it's also simply that the world is swamped with problems and has been unable to pay attention in the way previously it did to the kinds of work that humanitarian agencies do in dealing with, um, you know, floods and disasters and droughts and local conflict and so on. And how has OCHA confronted those challenges in terms of the pandemic? Well, OCHA's job is basically to be the coordinator for the humanitarian system. So we restructured um, the way we're organised. We have more people in the field, fewer at headquarters. Um, We have put our finances in order. When I started this job, Ocha was facing a range of financial um, difficulties, which we've been able to resolve. And we've really focused down on those four key responsibilities we have. Firstly, to identify humanitarian need when it emerges. Secondly, to coordinate the development of response plans in every country where there's a problem. Thirdly, to raise the money to pay for those response plans. And then fourthly, to help with some specific issues around implementation, not delivering food or medical care or commodities to people, but helping with things like access negotiations in conflict and deconfliction systems where humanitarian staff need to be protected from men with guns and bombs. Speaking about access restrictions and the challenging humanitarian environment, we've also seen during this period that humanitarian operations have increasingly come under fire in places such as Syria, Yemen and South Sudan. But you've also, as you mentioned, faced access impediments um, and bureaucratic blockades and outright um, inability to get your work done sometimes. And how would you describe this humanitarian space over this period? Well... All the countries in the world have signed up to laws which oblige them to ensure that people, civilians caught up through no fault of their own in conflict or other disasters can get help in an impartial and neutral way. And humanitarian workers are the front line of doing that. And you're right that we've seen far too many violations of um, those 
laws that everybody had signed up to, violations both by states, by countries, members of the UN, but also violations by non-state armed groups, increasingly extremist terrorist groups. It is clear that there is a real challenge to compliance with the laws that should protect aid workers from being caught up, being injured or killed or abducted or interrogated or abused when they're doing their job reaching innocent people. Though that, that system is under huge strain. And one of the things I spent a lot of time doing in, in the course of my job over the last four years, including through more than 100 meetings where I briefed the Security Council on what's going on, has been trying to call that out. And I think we need to see a set of things happen to bring these sorts of challenges under better control. Firstly, we do need to remind everybody why they signed up to these arrangements and the importance of sustaining the obligations they took on. Secondly, I think it's really important to call out violations when they happen. That can be quite a frustrating and unrewarding thing to do, as I found in lots of meetings of the Security Council where I've been raising issues and I haven't always felt they were being dealt with as well as they could have been. But it's nevertheless very important to keep doing it. Thirdly, I think we need to develop better understanding of a new tools for dealing with some of the new extremist groups. There are now groups that have emerged who don't really buy into the rules of the game everyone else has signed up to in the decades since the Second World War, that aid workers shouldn't be attacked. And we need to find ways of addressing that. It's a very complicated and difficult topic, but developing more effective ways of negotiating access and consent, investing more in understanding the ideological and other motivations and the, the organisational behaviour, if you like, the psychology of what lies behind some of the decisions made by these extremist groups. And also recognising that sometimes, uh, and this is a difficult thing for humanitarian organisations, what is necessary is a military response to those groups. When we started the interview, I had asked you about the goals that you had hoped to achieve. Do you feel that you have achieved them? Well, um, as I said at the beginning, I hope there will be less humanitarian need in the world. In fact, there's more than there was. That, um, on one level, is, is obviously not a positive indicator of um, what I hope would happen. What it is really important to say, though, is that we have avoided the worst outcomes in, in some of the big crises. I've been very worried for the whole of the last year of a huge famine engulfing and consuming the lives of and taking the lives of millions of people in Yemen. And we've been able to stave that off so far. Likewise, in um, other crises where there's huge numbers of lives at risk uh, because of food insecurity, northeast Nigeria, South Sudan, parts of the Sahel. As I leave office, we've now got a huge famine problem in northern Ethiopia. There is still time to avoid the worst, but not if the men with guns and bombs and their political masters fail to change their behaviour. So um, we need to keep going on all of those areas. I do think the humanitarian system has stood up very well to the challenges. I have enormous admiration, particularly for the courage and commitment and professionalism and creativity of frontline humanitarian workers. Things would be a lot worse if those people weren't risking their lives every day to help other people. So there are a whole range of um, ways in which I think the humanitarian system is improving. But that is really only taking the edge off the fact that the needs are growing because the causes of those needs aren't being addressed. And that's really the thing that the world needs to 
work out how to deal with better, whether it's conflict, preventing conflict, better cooperation between the great powers to that end, whether it's climate change, slowing the rate of warming of the planet, um, acting earlier when there's droughts and other extreme storms, or whether it's diseases. Mr. Lokak, um, we have questions from various UN news language units um, from our Arabic colleagues. They would like to know, what's the one thing that will keep you up at night more than anything else? The things I worry about, that's really what this question is, is getting at, is it's above all whether the world can um, find a set of arrangements for geopolitical collaboration, cooperation, which enables some of the big crises, and many of the worst ones, whether it's Syria or Yemen, are in the Middle East. Until the world gets better at dealing with the underlying causes and resolving those problems, humanitarian need will be very high. I haven't seen much sign of improvement on that um, yet, but I, I am hopeful that maybe, particularly because of the new posture being adopted by the Biden administration, that could change over the next few years, and that would make a huge difference. The other thing, of course, is whether the world is going to reach agreement on more effective action to tackle climate change. The countries worst affected by climate change are the ones with the biggest humanitarian problems, so they have a double whammy. You know, the whole world needs to worry about climate change, but the beneficiaries of faster, better action, both on mitigation and adaptation and resilience, would importantly be the poorest, the most vulnerable, those with humanitarian problems. Do you feel that there was anything that could have been done better or that the UN could have done more to help in humanitarian situations? Well, I think it's really, really important that we remain self-critical, that we strive for continuous improvement, that we recognise there's huge unmet need and that we're determined and driven to um, do better every single day. And that mindset, avoiding complacency and avoiding the um, wrong belief that just because you are trying to do good, you are necessarily doing the best you can. I think that's a very dangerous mindset to allow yourself to fall into. So we should always be frustrated at the problems we face. We should always be striving to do better um, because we owe that to the people whose lives we're trying to protect and improve. My colleagues from the Spanish unit would like to know, out of the multiple crises in Latin America and the Caribbean region, which one do you consider to be the most urgent? Well, it, this is a region which has developed a lot over the last 30, 40, 50 years, and many of whose countries have um, really got beyond the systematic, consistent need for international help to deal with crises when they arrive. Obviously, for every part of the planet at the moment, the biggest problem is still COVID. And in that region, there's not nearly enough vaccine to go around. But if we look beyond that, and hopefully by a year from now, certainly 18 months from now, in Latin America and the Caribbean region, we will largely be beyond that. I think a crisis that is going to continue to dominate and be problematic is the situation in Venezuela. Um, and one of the tragedies about that is this is a country which has, you know, the world's largest reserves of oil, should be a rich country. And the problems it has arises from failures of governance, essentially, from governance deficits. So what I hope is that Venezuelans, with help from outside, can find a better path forward to develop their country, to resolve their differences, um, and to give people a realistic hope that life can improve into the future in a way that all those hopes have been dashed over the last decade. 
Then the other thing I would say about this region is that, particularly in the Caribbean area, there, there's a very high degree of vulnerability to climate-related extreme weather events. And um, those countries need to keep going on the journey they are on, but is not complete, to improve their resilience and preparedness and ability to respond when those things happen. There's a lot of warming and future adverse weather events baked in already. Even if we have a blistering success in Glasgow at the Commons of the Parties later this year, there will be a lot more of those problems and everybody needs to run faster to prepare for them. And from my colleagues in the Chinese unit, they say that many developed countries now seem to want to give up their commitment to spend 0.7% of their uh, GDP on official development assistance, ODA. How much impact would this move have on humanitarian assistance worldwide? Well, I don't think it's the case that many developed countries want to do that. I think there's only one country, actually, that has stepped back from that commitment. And I hope that stepping back will only be for a very short period and will will quickly be reversed. I I do think it's a huge problem that um, certainly when the UN coordinated humanitarian appeals and responses are considered, far too big a share of the burden is met by a very small number of Western countries. The system we have for humanitarian action in the UN, unlike, say, for peacekeeping or for paying the general bills of the UN, is a voluntary system. And in recent years, 70% of the bill has voluntarily been met from just four sources, the United States, Germany, the European Union and the United Kingdom. I don't think that is a viable, sustainable approach into the future. So I think it'd be very, very good if more countries played a bigger role in financing the collective effort, if there was less free riding, frankly. And I think there need to be discussions about that in the period ahead. And I do have one or two ideas, which when I've moved on from this job, I may um, launch and try to win some support for, because the current arrangements, I think, are no longer fit for purpose. From our Russian unit colleagues, It kind of relates to the earlier question about what keeps you up at night, but you know and see firsthand the scale and depth of suffering across the world. How do you not succumb to despair and depression and what keeps you going? Well, I I mean, I think the fundamental thing is you have to believe things can get better and you have to understand that the things you're doing do at least make some contribution to relieving people's suffering. You know, I've worked for 40 years on international development and related issues and much of what I've seen has been improvement in the human condition. When I was born, the majority of people on the planet lived in the most extreme poverty. They were hungry most of the time. Many children died in infancy. People were uh, unable to send their children to school. There's been huge progress and those conditions prevail now in about 10% of people's lives. So we need to give those people the same opportunities that many people across the planet have had. Also another question from um, our colleagues. Have you ever regretted agreeing to take on this demanding job? (laughs) Well, um, you know, the Secretary General rang me up in April 2017 and asked me if I would take up the job. I think if the Secretary General of the United Nations rings you up and asks you that, you need a very good reason to decline. And I must say, I've been extremely lucky with my boss, one of my best tips of advice to younger colleagues who sometimes come to me and ask me, well, what's your advice in terms of um, career development? And one of the best tips is pick a really good boss, go and work for someone you really admire. And I've been incredibly lucky to work for 
Antonio Guterres. He's a very, very brilliant man. And he's a very, very good person to work for as a manager. He's clear what he wants. He has a very clear set of values. He expects you to deliver and um, he lets you get on with it. And when there's a problem, he always, all the time is available to help. I have, you know, many, many days while I've been doing this job, had to go to him and ask for a bit of help on a topic. And I've always been amazed by how quickly, instantly he has responded and how constructively his response has always been. And is there any particular advice you would give to your successor? Well, my successor, fortunately, is a very, very experienced person who I think probably knows a lot more about the international humanitarian system than I do. So I don't really think he needs advice from me. Obviously, Martin and I know each other very well. We've um, worked together very closely on Yemen for three years now. Um, He and I have had lots of discussions. Um, He's asked me lots of questions about what's going on so he can prepare himself to take up the job. I will be watching from the sidelines. I'll be cheering all the humanitarian agencies on. If there's ways in which I can offer thoughts or ideas or contribute, I'm happy to do that. But I know that OCHA and the humanitarian system is going to be in very good hands under Martin's leadership as the new coordinator. Well, that was the outgoing UN Humanitarian Affairs Chief, Mark Lowcock, speaking to UN News' Deanne Penn as he prepares to leave the top UN emergency relief job at the end of this week. This has been a special edition of our Lid Is On podcast. I'm Matt Wells. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>